Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Hello and welcome to Sacred Nine Podcast. A lot of exciting things are happening. We have launched the Jewel Prize for African American Spirituals and are now accepting new spirituals arrangements from yet unpublished African American composers. There is a $1,000 prize and a premiere in New Orleans in March of 2024. For guidelines and to learn how to donate to this initiative, please visit sacrednine.com jewel. For more information on giving, visit sacrednine.com giving. Here you can see donor tiers. I have designated a Facebook group for you to comment on any podcast episode or even begin any discussion that you think would resonate with us. Facebook.com slash groups slash Sacred Nine Project. That's Sacred Numeral Nine Project. Finally, if you are a university, museum, or other entity who would like a custom project created on a particular what, where, or who, please email. Humble brag. I am recording the vocal selections for this episode from my very own original 1854 edition of our old friend, The Southern Harmony and Musical Companion. I would like to warn you that this episode contains offensive and spurious Native American dialect as well as the word Indian for Native American. Picture it. You've filled up on turkey, cranberry sauce, dressing, and sweet potato casserole after this year's Thanksgiving feast, and you slip into a much-needed post-gluttony nap. Visions come of happy pilgrims and peaceful Native Americans all fellowshipping together, finally living in complete harmony and sharing the first Thanksgiving meal. No more war. Everyone... This is just not how it was, but it's the kind of propaganda I was taught. A lot of information about the first Thanksgiving, although it wasn't called that, can be found in David Kendi's 2021 Smithsonian Magazine article entitled, How to Tell the Thanksgiving Story on Its 400th Anniversary. Virtually the only information we have about that event was a few lines written by colonist Edward Winslow in 1621, quote, Our harvest being gotten in, our governor set four men on fowling, that so we might after have a special manner rejoice together, after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help beside, served the company almost a week, at which time amongst other recreations we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and amongst the rest their greatest king, Mazasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. End quote. True, in some places, as in the Plymouth Colony, relations between colonists and Native Americans were more favorable. Donna Curtin, executive director of Pilgrim Hall, America's oldest continuously operated public museum, suggests that this feast was more about diplomacy, forging relationships. 
the two groups had signed a treaty to protect each other, as half the pilgrims had died since they arrived, and 90% of Native Americans had perished due to diseases brought from Europe. All that to say that yes, it may have been a peaceful and even enjoyable meal, but it is certainly not the kind of utopian scene that has been peddled to us through the centuries. In fact, since 1970, many Native Americans have observed Thanksgiving as a day of mourning. The article, The Indian Convert, Theme and Variation, by John Freeman in 1965, is a study about Christian missionaries engaging with Native Americans. Quote, that Christian missionaries have been agents of social change is a matter of record. Missionaries have been regarded as civilizers, innovators, and disruptors of non-Western societies, and consequently it has been easy to assume that Christianity and Western civilization could be considered as interchangeable when missionaries preached the gospel to unenlightened heathens." End quote. Listen to that again. Christianity and Western civilization could be considered as interchangeable. Does that sound familiar today for some groups of people? As we have discussed in previous episodes, the missionaries here are largely just doing their jobs. They truly feel that what they are doing is crucial and benevolent. Some of the supposed first-hand accounts from converted Native Americans are unsettling. Complete rejections of their so-called former idol worship. Of course, it is hard to know if these accounts are accurate or just puffing. The slaughter of Native Americans and the seizure of their resources is anything but benevolent. However, I'm not really talking about that, although I know there is overlap between these missionaries and the people who wantonly exploited the Native Americans. Still, I'm referring here to the good guys, who are just doing what the Bible tells them to do. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. And some took it very seriously. From Harvard University's The Pluralism Project page, quote, John Eliot mastered Algonquian and then translated the Bible into that language in 1663. His, quote, The Indian Covenanting Confession, close quote, was printed in 1669 in both Algonquian and English. He intended to place missionary efforts in the hands of Indians themselves, end quote. Also from the Pluralism Project, quote, On the whole, these English settlers saw themselves as settling in a virgin land where real civilization had not been established. They understood their right to conquest in terms of old English legal traditions based on industry and utility, in which constructing houses, building fences, and laying out plantations constituted legitimate claims to land. They took their biblical warrant from Genesis 1:28, quote, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it." End quote. These sentiments show up in music, of course, and you guessed it, Southern Harmony is an excellent source for this. There are at least 3 hymns to consider. The first is Indian's Farewell. The words were written by Anna Jane Vardell in 1807. And Rachel Wells Hall asserts that it was written from the point of view of a Kashmiri Indian, although it was wrongly associated with Native Americans and pilgrims. When shall we all meet again? When shall we all meet again? Oft shall glowing hope expire. 
Half shall wearied love retire, half shall death and sorrow reign, ere we all shall meet again, half shall death and sorrow reign, ere we all shall meet again. The other three verses. Though in distant lands we sigh, parched beneath a hostile sky, though the deep between us rolls, friendship shall unite our souls. And in fancy's wild domain, oft shall we all meet again. When our burnished locks are gray, thinned by many a toil-spent day, when around the youthful pine moss shall creep and ivy twine, long may the loved bower remain, ere we all shall meet again. When the dreams of life are fled, when its wasted lamps are dead, when in cold oblivion's shade, beauty, fame, and wealth are laid, where immortal spirits reign, there may we all meet again. Indian's petition was originally titled The Indian's Prayer, and the words are by Reverend John Perry, a Pennsylvania minister. It is from the point of view of a Native American boy who escapes to return to his native tribe. At the bottom of that page appears this annotation, quote, This song, it is said, was composed by the son of a chief of one of the Western tribes, who was sent to the city of Washington to make a treaty with the United States, which treaty was delayed for a while by some unavoidable circumstances, end quote. Let me go to my home in the far distant west to the scenes of my childhood in innocence blessed where the tall cedars wave and the bright waters flow where my fathers repose let me go let me go where my fathers repose oh there let me go the last four verses let me go to the spot where the cataracts play where i often have sported in boyhood's bright day and there greet my fond mother whose heart will o'erflow at the sight of her child let me go let me go let me go to my sire by whose battle-scarred side i have sported so oft in the noon of my pride and exulted to conquer the insolent foe to my father the chief let me go let me go and oh do let me go to my flashing-eyed maid who hath taught me to love neath the green willow's shade, whose heart like the fawn leaps and is pure as the snow. To the bosom I love, let me go, let me go. And oh, do let me go to the wild forest home, no more from its life-cheering fond pleasures to roam. Neath the grove of the glen let my ashes lie low, 
to my home in the wood. Let me go. Let me go. I apologize for the slow reading, but the lyrics are very unclear on here, not only in my original, but also in the facsimiles that one finds on archive.org, etc. Indian Convert, also known as Indian Hymn, be warned, is like the blackface of Native American missionary songs, as it incorporates a spurious dialect. It is the tune that is so divisive in today's sacred harp community. At the bottom of this page in Southern Harmony appears, quote, The first three verses of this song were taken almost verbatim by a missionary from an Indian experience while he was relating it. The last two verses were composed by David Walker, the author's brother, end quote, the author being William Walker, the editor of Southern Harmony. According to Drew Lopenzina, William Apes is the Native American to whom this text is attributed. However, Lopenzina reports that Apes was a learned man and asserts that Apes could not be the author of this poem of broken English. And incidentally, how many poems in a broken language are also magically in perfect meter and rhyme? Actually, I believe this is pure propaganda, evidence that the missionaries were creating a more, quote, noble savage, end quote. In the dark woods, no Indian night, then me look heaven and send up cry, then me look heaven and send up cry, upon my knees so low. But God on high in shiny place, see me at night with teary face, see me at night with teary face, the preacher tell me so. But God on high in shiny place, see me at night with teary face, see me at night with teary face, the preacher tell me so. The last four verses. God sent he angel, take him care. He come himself and hear him prayer if Indian heart do pray. He see me now, he know me here. He say poor Indian never fear. Me with you night and day. So me love God with inside heart. He fight for me, he take him part. He save him life before. God hear poor Indian in the wood. So me love him and that be good, me prize him evermore. The joy I felt I cannot tell, to think that I was saved from hell, through Jesus' streaming blood, that I am saved by grace divine, who am the worst of all mankind, O glory be to God. Now I be here baptized to be, that in the water you may see the way my Jesus go. This is the way I do believe that Jesus here for us did leave to follow here below. So that was really hard to read. Those last two verses, starting with the joy I felt I cannot tell to the end there, were written apparently by William Walker's brother and the rest supposedly taken verbatim from a Native American. But of course, we all know that's not true. It's very difficult to read that in that dialect. I don't mean it's physically difficult to read, but emotionally difficult to read. I can imagine it must feel like such a violation 
not only is the author of that speaking for Native Americans, but also daring to put it in such a mocking, almost, dialect. We have talked about George Root, song composer, and of course Fanny Crosby, poet and hymnist. They teamed up to create the Pilgrim Fathers in 1854. She refers to Native Americans as savage. It starts with the pilgrims in England. They go to the New World and are sorely oppressed by the Native Americans. They just got there and already the pilgrims are singing about protecting their homes. The Native Americans imagine that these bright-faced newcomers must have been set by God. Here is a lyric from the point of view of the Native Americans. Quote, "'Tis the great spirit sends them to our shore. They are his children. We rebel no more." End quote. And then the Native Americans suddenly stop being angry. The white man beats them in battle and there was a big happy chorus ending. Do you see a pattern here? In every instance, a white person is speaking for a Native American, propagating the idea that we were the best things to ever happen to them or generally romanticizing their experience. I wish everyone, including today's Christian nationalists, could see how dangerous it is when a group of people believe they have been sent by God to do a thing, that God favors them more than other groups. And I'm here to tell you that that same attitude absolutely prevails among Christian nationalists today. Nationalists are the enlightened ones, and yes, any brown person who does not know the Christian God are pagans, barbarians, and uncivilized. Darius Coombs reminds us that what started to happen after that first Thanksgiving was colonization, Christianity, cultural genocide, servitude. Is it acceptable to enjoy Thanksgiving? To be grateful for our country? Of course! I'm just going to try to take a moment on that day to reflect on the fact that our comfort and security came at a great price. With three man a couple of more things. First, I wanted to let you know that in the second recited verse of Indian's Farewell, I misread a word. And in fancy's wide domain, not wild domain. Interesting mistake there, don't you think? More importantly, though, after listening back to this episode, I can't help but notice how preachy it is. That's not how I want to be. Instead of redoing the episode, I prefer just to get vulnerable and let you know my thoughts. Yes, I believe it is appropriate to call out Christian nationalists. Also, I don't want to operate from the illusion that I have successfully emerged on the other side of Christian nationalism when I was entrenched in that worldview for half my life, before we had the term Christian nationalism, and before I would have ever doubted for a second that the United States was the most highly favored country in the world. So let me turn my pronouns to the first person. When have I felt entitled to speak for another group of people? When have I felt that my heritage is somehow superior? Have mercy. See you in December. <laughs>